1: Silent train is people! No, I am the father of
2: all. What's in the box? You did it! You blew it up! Damn you, all. Hello and welcome to the Slate Spoiler Special podcast. Today we're going to be talking about the new horror movie Saint Maud. And joining me to talk about that movie are senior editor Jeff Bloomer. Hi, Jeffrey. Hello. And on the phone with us or by Skype from New Hampshire for the first time that I've ever spoiled with you, Ruth, is Slate staff writer Ruth Graham. Hello.
0: Hello. I'm so happy to be here. I'm a I'm a frequent listener, so I'm excited to get in on the spoiling action.
2: Oh, yeah. And I think this is a perfect first movie for you to spoil because I think of you, among other things, as Slate's religion correspondent, right? I mean, you have written quite a bit and reported quite a bit about issues of religion, faith, things that are crucial to understanding or at least being mystified by (laughs) St. Maude. Okay, as usual, I'm going to go around the table real quick and just ask if you guys liked or not so we know what position we're all arguing from. Personally, I loved this movie. I was really blown away, particularly knowing that it's the first film of this 30-year-old filmmaker, Rose Glass. What about you, Jeff?
1: Uh, I liked the movie quite a bit as well. I found it even as someone who sort of eagerly consumes movies like this, like especially hardcore. Like I was kind of... It is it literally scorched-earth movie. Um, yeah and i i have some reservations about it a little maybe a little bit more than you but i think it is an extremely impressive debut and definitely the first notable horror movie of the year
2: and you are a horror connoisseur
1: yes Okay, I that's good so. to know.
2: <laughs> that may come up later in the conversation as well. Because I think in talking about this movie and in letting people decide whether or not to see it, we should give some glimpse of, you know, how much excruciation they're gonna have to go through horror-wise. Ruth, what about you? I liked it a lot. I'm excited to see what
0: else this director does. I didn't I think I didn't quite love it as much as you, or maybe Jeff, we can get into that, but um I thought it was like a lot of dread, incredible atmosphere, great performances, but it didn't quite uh, surprise me. It didn't feel as, like, suspenseful as I as I wanted it to to feel. But I liked right. it a lot.
2: Yeah, I mean, you could say that, we'll get to the ending, obviously, because it's a spoiler special, but you could say that there's a, um, a predictable path in the sense yes. that there's a sense of inevitable doom hanging over the movie. And because it's a, a two-hander, as we'll get into, and there's it's really, there are other characters, but it really is just about the dynamic between these two characters, you pretty much know that one of them is probably not going to make it happen. Right. <laughs> So let's set up the story. We begin with this um this very mysterious cold open that never quite explains itself. Does I do either of you want to explain the first scary things that we see? Yeah, sure. I mean it opens
0: there's sort of this dingy operating room. You see Maud, the main character, you see and you'll have to help me with the pronunciation of this brilliant actress's name, Morphid Clark. I think Is it's Morphid, yeah. Morphid, okay. Um, a lot of this movie is her face, and that uh, also features very heavily in this cold open. She's she has blood on her hands, blood on her face. She's clearly shell shocked. She's just gone through uh, something very traumatic. She's in some kind of like operating room or medical room, and. There are just shots of, there's a bug, like a big kind of cockroach-looking bug crawling on the ceiling. She's kind of hunched over in the corner and and just kind of, uh, you know, recovering from whatever has just happened and we don't know. And then I think the shot that sort of takes us into then the main part of the movie, I think then it flashes, you know, St. Maud. And then the first shot after that is also kind of a mysterious image of some like bubbling red viscous liquid uh, (laughs) that we find out is tomato soup and then you know that's how we sort of enter into the the main part of the story but we know that we will return to whatever this the scene of this primal trauma is in the in those first shots.
2: That was a vivid description, but there's one key image I think was there, which was the head isn't, don't you see this body kind of lying on a, a gurney yes, across the right. room from her? Yeah, you see and, this. And I think mm-hmm. the, the the person has long hair that blood is dripping off of, because I know that's an image that comes up later that feels like it's, it's familiar already when you see it again. Yes,
0: you're right. She's clear. Yeah, there's some kind, there's a dead body there and we don't know what happened, but they, they both are have blood on them. So, yes.
2: right? Mm-hmm.
1: yeah. Right. Yeah. It seems like it's a medical setting. So mm-hmm. I even though it's never fully explained what happens it seems sort of clear that Maude... I I can't remember if you can clearly see it, but it seems like she may be in a nursing... Mm -hmm. We find out later that she is a nurse and that something happened. But it seems like that's like sort of the milieu that we're looking at, is that she's in sort of a medical situation that went south.
2: Right. And whatever happened, as we know from the regular part of the movie when it starts... Uh, It wasn't bad enough to get her, you know, uh, put into criminal prosecution or something. I don't think it suggested that she deliberately killed this person, but maybe that because of some sort of negligence or some unanticipated emergency, the person died in spite of her efforts, Mm -hmm. right? Because whatever happened is intense enough that it's caused her to convert to this very extreme form of Catholicism.
1: Yeah, it seems like it it also kicked her out of nursing, at least by self-exile for a while, because it seems like the next gig that we'll get into in a minute is where she goes after like the first time she nurses again.
0: Well, and it was also bad enough and I'm sure we'll get to this, but her friend uh, from this period is sort of surprised that she's back in nursing. So I, I it must've been, I don't know if that means that her mental breakdown was so obvious at that moment or that, you know, cause the friend, she runs into this friend on the street later who asks like, Oh, do your current employers know what happened? Um, so, I, yeah, I don't know exactly what we're – we'll get to that. I'm kind of relieved that neither of you have perfect clarity on that either because I was wondering if I was supposed to – if that was supposed to be perfectly resolved, so –
2: Right. I mean, it's one of these movies that we haven't mentioned this yet, but it's 84 minutes long. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things I most admired about this movie is it's this slender little wisp of a movie, but a lot happens in those 84 minutes. But one thing that really doesn't happen is, you know, anybody ever popping up to exposit mm-hmm. <laughs> that first opening scene and how it relates to the second half of, mm-hmm. not half, the, the entire rest of the movie. Um, but but what you do know from it is she was sufficiently traumatized that she changed her name from Kate to Maud, right, which was part of this conversion to Christiane. Christianity, her own very intense form of, of Christianity that seems to be kind of self-invented as she goes along, um, but that it didn't get her, you know, thrown out of the profession entirely because she, as the movie begins, has become a home health aide on the way to meet her new patient.
1: Yes. Um, I'm trying to recall uh, the first scene when she's there. So she, we see her go to um, the house of Amanda, who is sort of this more modern dancer who seems to be I, I assume she has cancer i don 't know if it 's totally clear what's yeah, wrong it's a
0: stage four lymphoma mm-hmm. yeah, I oh, think they do go. say that mm-hmm. in well, okay
1: uh, uh, and when she's arriving, the previous nurse is there and she sort of asks her how she is, and she says that she's i think it's it's a British movie so they use the C word to describe <laughs> her so you're kind of like um sort of already, like, uh, bracing for the first encounters between the two of them. But then at first, when she meets her, she seems almost sort of lovely, Mm -hmm. like maybe a little prickly. But uh, we should say that Amanda is played by Jennifer Ely, who is sort of a beloved actress who I don't know has gotten to the level of um, name recognition for everybody, but who is quite prolific both... In theater and in movies, um, last time I identified an actor by one thing, I got a very angry <laughs> note about it. But I will say that uh, I think she first became known to me as L- Elizabeth Bennet in the BBC um, Pride and Prejudice with Colin Firth.
2: The best Pride and Prejudice, <laughs> definitely, yes.
1: So that's how that's how I've always known her. But she's 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 quite prolific, and she we'll talk about her a lot. I assume because her performance in this movie is quite a knockout. This is one of those horror movie performances that you could almost, almost, almost imagine making it into an awards conversation because she's so, so good.
2: Yeah, and I feel like so many Jennifer Ely fans are out there waiting for her to get this kind of role. It's not quite the lead. It's a co-lead sort of, I guess, Mm -hmm. but I feel like she's always getting put in supporting roles as some sort of smiling, serene woman in the corner, and to Mm -hmm. see her get to really go to town on a role that's so much darker and more complicated than that is one of the great pleasures of this movie. Yeah, I agree. All right, so she arrives at Amanda's, which we should mention is this almost Gothic-style, really incredible set, the house, um, that that sits high up on a hill in this seaside town, this sort of run-down seaside town. And inside the house is this... Ugh, it's just—it's just like um, almost like Corella Deville's house in 101 <laughs> Dalmatians, right? I mean, it's this sort of red velvety carnal space that is really well suited to the character who represents, at least to Maud, all of these pleasures of the flesh. Um, but do you want to describe the dynamic route that arises between the two women after Maud arrives? Sure. Um, like Jeff said, it's at first she's very welcoming
0: and warm, and they have this almost kind of flirtatious relationship, or at least that's what Amanda seems to be initiating. Um, Amanda, you know, kind of probes and asks her about her faith, and she's interested in Maude. Um, They, There's kind of an important scene early on where it's obviously a very intimate relationship because Maud is caring for her and bathing her and cooking for her. Um, there's an early scene where Amanda gets very drunk with she's on some kind of like date or get together with a friend who comes to visit her. And then afterwards Maud cares for her and and they have this kind of intense conversation where Maud starts to describe how God talks to her and she can hear him audibly. So we we start to kind of understand more about this spiritual relationship that that Maud has. Um, and then we also find out that Maud's spiritual life is almost kind of is almost physical I mean it's sort of an uh, orgasmic she has like an orgasmic spiritual life basically um so Maud and Amanda are kind of circling each other and talking to each other about you know death and God and these intense things and it's a very kind of warm intimate and you know almost kind of sexy relationship at first and you know Amanda is a very sensual, open, you know, kind of physical person. Her work has been physical and dance. And Maud is very, very, very tightly, tightly wound, um, trying to keep sort of control all the time. And so they're kind of circling each other um, in that in that initial relationship.
2: Yeah, at first there's almost a romantic feeling between them, although I don't think the movie is really necessarily implying that there's, you know, a lesbian attraction no. on, on either side. Although the Jennifer Ely character is at least... By, if not gay, right? She has a man come to visit her. She also has a regular visit from a younger woman who seems to be her lover, but also seems to be taking money from her. And it's a whole relationship that Maud, in all her priggishness, finds absolutely contemptible.
1: Yeah, the relationship there, I think that's another uh, point where the movie is sort of deliberately vague. But we have a pretty clear sense that Amanda is, at the very least, not letting go of her sexuality, totally not letting go of sort of a libertine lifestyle, totally. She still is seemingly drinking and um, occasionally Mm -hmm. throwing parties and doing things like that pretty often. And she also does have this sexual relationship, which I wouldn't say quite rises to the level of prostitution, but it seems like kind of a typical older artist, younger person sort of vibe to it. And it does seem pretty clear that they're having sex. There's a scene where Maude, where I think makes it a little bit more explicit that there is some sexual curiosity, where Maude kind of watches. She's sort of watching in horror, because as maybe we'll get to next... she she sees herself as sort of someone who's going to save Amanda's soul and she's going to bring her to some sort of enlightenment before she dies. And so I think there's an element to which she watches that sort of relationship and thinks this is her straying from the path to uh, wherever it is that she wants her to go. But also I I did think there was a homoerotic tension to the way the two of those interacted. There's the scene where that orgasmic relationship with God becomes explicit and they both sort of, do that together, and you don't know that you're seeing mod like imagining that Amanda's going along with the same thing or if Amanda's just also pretending because it's like fun, it's like sort of hard to say.
2: Yeah, I'm curious about your, your thoughts about that scene, Ruth, which is a moment that you seem to think that Maud is making some headway in her attempt to spiritually convert her employer. But, but, but then later, because Amanda is such a tricky character who always seems to be playing a cat and mouse game that she's quite aware of, right? Mm-hmm. She's very self-aware at every moment. I found it somewhat hard to believe that she was... Simply uh, attempting this mystical experience in communion with Maud, especially when later she seems to dangle that very moment over her and and uh, and tease her about it.
1: Yes,
0: yeah. In the moment, I read that as I, it's it's kind of this it's very touching moment because I I think Maud first prays for her and just says, "Bless Amanda's body, which has done so many wonderful things. Bless her mind, which is shrouded in darkness." Kind of a passive aggressive prayer in front of her, um, but then Amanda does say like, I can feel God here. And it seems sincere to me in that moment. And then later, she repudiates that and, you know, sort of suggests that she was lying. And it's this devastating moment for Maud. But in the moment, I believed it. And they do have, it seems like they both orgasm there or whatever, you know, this kind of spiritual, like, swelling moment together. Um, <laughs> and it's, but it's very sensual. I, you know I guess if it wasn't sincere it's definitely I read it as really happening even if it's Amanda sort of really uh faking it for the sake of you know maybe she wants it to be true it, Amanda talks a lot about how she doesn't know what death will be like and you know wanting to sort of make some meaning of her life she's in this intense struggle too that is spiritual in its own way um but she's much more of a you know kind of Secular materialist than than Maud is. So uh, I guess we don't know what Amanda is really thinking there. but i did I did read that scene as sort of really happening, um, you know, within the uh, as the movie would have it.
2: There is also the exchange of the Blake book between mm-hmm. them, which seems like a mm-hmm. moment of sincere spiritual connection, right? Mm-hmm. That she um Amanda gives Maud this book of illustrations by William Blake. I guess it's the Songs of Innocence and Experience or something. And we get a lot of close-ups of the very mystical, strange, violent drawings of William Blake and a signature from Amanda saying, to my saint, right? Isn't it she? To my savior, Mm -hmm. My savior.
1: That's right, yeah. So Amanda's always calling her her savior. And sort of, I also read some sincerity in those early moments, although I think you're right that there's probably calculated sincerity, ultimately, given what we learn later. But the book, I think, is sort of a key piece also because it, it sort of helps telegraph how Maud's spirituality seems to be like on the fly. She seems to think of herself also as sort of a, uh, someone who's not um, involved in organized religion, mm-hmm. sort of her own sort of savant um, who has a direct relationship with God. And her religious experience isn't really tethered to anyone else's or any kind of um, traditional experience of religion. Um, and then that sort of informs her, seeing as her mission from God is to sort of convert Amanda or whatever it is that she wants to do before she dies.
0: Yeah, which makes, I, I, I noticed that too. I mean, we never see Maud, you know, in church or interacting with any clergy or participating in any kind of group, you know, organized religion. Um, and it also makes Blake, this perfect symbol who was also, you know, had visions throughout his life and devoutly religious in his own way, but also, you know, totally rejected organized religion. Um, so, he's kind of an interesting symbol to be, to be woven throughout. And Maude, I think, eventually sort of cuts out figures from the book and puts them on her wall in her sad little drab apartment, um, but, devu- you know, gets a lot of meaning from, from those images.
2: Yeah, she she creates this shrine that Mm -hmm. continues to build throughout the movie, right? That, as you say, doesn't seem to have any connection to any orthodoxy whatsoever. And that becomes important in the second half of the movie when she's just alone, you know, essentially in her monk-like little bedsit apartment, figuring out new ways to mortify her own flesh and eventually others as well. (laughs) Um, Let's talk about how she gets kicked out of, of Amanda's place. That happens pretty early, I would say in the first quarter of the movie or so.
1: yeah. And so it's a the,
2: result of this this wild party gone wrong.
1: Right. So the party setup is this sort of delicious scene where Maud confronts the like quasi girlfriend and sort of basically tells her that she has to stop seeing Amanda. And the girlfriend is this sort of like very cool, sort of like she seems like she's an artist or runs in those circles and just like is sort of like almost charmed by Maud's little act about how she has to like stay out of the house. And it's this funny standoff scene that is quite well performed. But it basically um, culminates in the girlfriend sort of agreeing, like she just does. She calls Amanda later and says, uh, "I can't come over," and this sends Amanda into kind of a funk. Um, and then the funk is sort of resolved eventually by Amanda throwing a big party that's clearly harkens back to what her life used to be like.
2: It's if, her birthday, right? Mm-hmm. She gets a birthday the, cake. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So yeah, I guess it is that, um, and she. The party is um, very full of sin and Maud is not liking it at all. Um, people are drinking heavily. It's one of those like kind of intimate parties where everyone's on like the uh, legs of the couch and all gathering around her and laughing. Amanda seems drunk again and kind of calls Maud over and now um, calls her her savior, I believe in that scene in a way that suddenly finally takes on the mocking tone mm-hmm. that we always sort of maybe sensed was there somewhere. Um, and they go into a conversation. Ruth has seen the movie more recently and maybe can remember the specifics. But uh, essentially, it involves Amanda asking her to, to pray for her. What, is, what exactly happened yeah, in front of everybody? You know, I'm
0: tr- I actually can't remember the exact content of that back and forth. But Amanda like calls her out and kind of embarrasses her publicly and is sort of mocking her faith somehow. And Maude ends up slapping her. Um, And then she's, you know, fired on the spot. But it's this very, you described it so well, it's this very debaucherous scene, kind of like hell, you know, if we're thinking in the, in the like, Blake mode, it's this, it's this very like, hellish, hellish scene. Um, And she has
2: to leave immediately.
1: Yeah, it's quite a dramatic moment. Very, very well performed by both of the two hands here. And, and
2: with a great sense of danger, right? I mean, mm-hmm. when you say she slapped her and I realized, yeah, that's true. That's all that happened in that scene. <laughs> but you you think at that moment that somebody could get killed, somebody mm-hmm. could get stabbed. There's just that's one of the moments when the the moody creepiness of the rest of the movie builds into what you think is going to be a violent climax. Mm-hmm. Yes, So the the next three quarters of the movie, sadly Jennifer Ely doesn't appear again for a while, and we miss her. But it's amazing film when she leaves the picture as well, I think, because it gets into the space of Maud's head and you start to get into this sort of subjective space where you're not sure whether what's happening is really happening or if Maud is only perceiving it. There also starts to be this voice of God that comes in, occasionally spoken by apparently the bug that crawls across the wall of her apartment, <laughs> recalling that bug, Ruth, from the beginning in the hospital scene. Um, but, but God really becomes this presence in the last three quarters of the movie um, in this To me, quite unusual way. I can't think of too many movies about faith, at least recently, you know, since the days of Bresson and Bergman and, you know, the kind of filmmakers who addressed faith really head on um, that have filmed a spiritual struggle in this way. I thought it was really, really striking.
0: Could you tell what language God was speaking in? I, I, I couldn't tell.
2: I actually asked the director that. Jeff and I both saw the movie at a, a screening with a and a or maybe not a Q&A, a reception afterwards with the director. And I spoke with her briefly. Mm-hmm. And one thing I asked her was what language was God speaking when he spoke through through Maud in that scene. And she said it was Welsh, straight up Welsh, oh. which is Morphid Morfid Clark's, huh. I guess, one of her languages. She's a Welsh actress. And I, I guess a few enough people know Welsh that it sounded to me like it was Esperanto or some nonsense language invented for the movie right that's or like so something funny. running
0: backwards you know like the sort of devilish yeah it's well it is
2: morphe clark's voice speaking welsh that's you know then digitally slowed down oh, to wow. sound sort of creepy but yeah only only welsh viewers will know what the hell she oh, was wow. saying
1: that's i wonder if that's a tell because what you're describing also sets up what becomes the central tension of the movie where maud's spiritual like moments increasingly seem real like you it's the movie has this like dual tension. It's like you're either watching someone uh, amidst a uh, mental breakdown, or you're watching someone who's having an actual, real spiritual awakening. I think you can debate. You can say that the movie leans one way or the other, but as it goes on, it becomes increasingly difficult to tell because uh, the represent like the depiction in the movie becomes increasingly literal, including that scene. But if it's if it's somebody speaking Welsh um then i wonder if that is sort of meant to like tip the hand a little bit in a way that i didn't really think happened until the end of the movie.
2: You mean tip the hand that it's it's her own madness speaking right. to her. Yeah. I mean maybe for english viewers that would be clearer. I
0: i didn't i'm curious that i'm interested that that seemed ambiguous to me because to me one of the things that was a little disappointing to me about this was how clearly it seemed to me that it, it's really just a story about mental illness and trauma and I guess that's kind of the cliche now of like every horror movie is like, it's really about trauma. (laughs) Um, But this movie really did seem to be about that. And I, I wanted it to be a little bit more ambiguous. Like, you know, is God really talking to her? What is she experiencing? Is there any, is there any kind of like material or or spiritual reality to these experiences? And to me, it did seem just a little bit too obvious that it's her internal struggles and, and her mental illness. Um, I just I, I kept thinking about the movie Personal Shopper, which came out a few years ago with oh, yeah. Kristen Stewart. Oh, yeah. Love that movie.
2: Yeah, same.
0: that movie, you know, she, Kristen Stewart is a medium. And there are a few scenes there where it seems like you really are seeing some kind of ghost. Or, uh, you know, there's other parts where she's getting texts from, I think it turns out to be a stalker. But other scenes where you're really seeing something Happening in the world that I think that movie was really saying was really happening, or at least it was much more ambiguous to me in a much more mysterious way. And this movie did seem it it seemed pretty clear to me at least throughout that this is just in Mod's head.
1: That's funny. I didn't feel sure about that until the final shot, which is too early to get to, but we mm-hmm. definitely have to talk about it because it's one of the most brutal endings I can remember in um, maybe any movie. Um, Dana, did you? Feel pretty sure, the whole movie, that it was all in her head?
2: Yes, but I didn't regard that as a flaw of the movie, I guess Mm -hmm. I would say. I mean... I, I didn't think that this movie was raising the material question, is God speaking to this woman mm-hmm. in Northern England? The way that, as you say, Ruth, personal shopper, makes you ask the question, are there ghosts? Is she really communicating with the dead, et cetera? And, and left that mysterious right up until the last minute. Um, but the idea that this is just a movie about someone going mad because of, of incidents of medical trauma and because of loneliness and because of who knows what other factors in her life, because we know so little about her, Right it didn't seem to me like flimsy material for a movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just the, the relationship between the two women and the relationship between Maude and herself and her ideas of what religion might be seemed like plenty to make for, you know, enough conflict. I guess I didn't need God to be real or not real Yeah, to care about that story.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. And I, I, I did really love how, I mean, she Maude is using all of these sort of religious ritual, religious rituals, some of them kind of self-created and in some she's like drawing on Catholicism. And it's a way, initially, it seems for her to really keep herself tightly in control. And then later it becomes this way of her mental illness just, uh, you know, un- it becomes a way for her to like unleash herself and uh, like a motif for her to express all of the trauma and and pain that she's experiencing so i you're right it's not necessarily a weakness but it it's something i i guess i did wish that i were a little more uh that was a little more suspenseful throughout i felt like i sort of got that it was mental illness
1: it's funny it's funny because uh when you guys talk about personal shopper being mysterious i thought there were definitely ghosts in that movie so maybe i'm just (laughs) with these things
2: no i did Um, too i did too but you agree (laughs) that the movie dangles the possibility
1: yes it's in, in both movies. I, I think it's deliberately ambiguous, and you're meant to question. I guess I just thought that this movie um, balanced the scales a little more than you guys did, but I think it's you know up for debate.
2: I'm going to interrupt our conversation for just a minute here for a word from our sponsor today. Can we talk a little about the mortifications of the flesh that she puts herself through? Because yes. really, in this last part of the movie, Maud kind of goes medieval on her own ass, <laughs> right? I mean, she kind of becomes this this monastic self-torturer. And again, she seems to be making it up on the fly. But, um, but there's some really memorably awful things that she oh. does to herself.
0: Well, we see a little bit in the first section of the movie where she spills out some popcorn on the floor and then kneels on it to pray like in her bare knees I think so you see this little hint of like that this is part of her her practice um but then after she leaves it it escalates Uh, the the most memorable one she sort of takes apart her shoes and puts thumbtacks I guess through the soles facing upwards and then Oh, slides her feet into them and walks around, you know, this little seaside town that she lives in. Um and it's kind of this secret, you know, this secret kind of perversion and yeah, self-flagellation that she's that she's performing.
1: Yeah, I mean that is such a show-stopping body horror moment. I think that like in the classical like Cronenberg sense, body horror can be really effective. I think that there are times when it's done to ill effect, but here it's like perfect. And I'm sorry to do this, but sometimes we play music during um, our spoiler specials to give people a sense. And the, w- the most horrifying part of that scene, other than when she's walking around and you know she has spikes in her foot, is the initial sound that it makes. Ugh. And the sound is available on the internet. It's <laughs> no. a squish. And my, um, fr- my friends are all calling this movie the squish because it's in the trailer. And I think for <laughs> listeners, we should play the squish. So, everybody, let's Fine. pause for a second. Here's the squish.
2: I feel fuller of your love than ever before. I did not want to relive that moment, even in purely auditory form. But I have to say that this discussion about the the squish and the the nails and the shoes is reminding me of the restraint that I admired in that portion of the movie because I think a lesser movie that really just wanted to gross you out with visuals would have shown you what it looked like when she took off her shoe. And I was waiting for that, waiting for the shoe to drop literally and that we were going to have to see this horrible infested cut up foot that she had from walking around but it, but that never happens. And this, part yeah. of this movie's 84 minute slimness is that it sometimes spares you things that you think you're inevitably going to have to see and experience. And sometimes the body horror is done digitally in a very subtle way. For example, the Times, maybe this happens two or three times throughout the movie, that Maud opens her mouth slightly wider than any human mouth could actually mm-hmm. open. Did you guys notice that? Mm-hmm. It's it's when she's sort of either in ecstasy or in some sort of pain or anguish. Or vomiting. And <laughs> and her yeah, her mouth becomes this kind of monstrous cavern, but only just for a second, so that you yourself think, Well, am I Maud? Am I seeing things and going crazy?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think also it's worth noting, the movie becomes increasingly disorienting, like the camera is flipping around as Maud walks around town and you're sort of more and more in her head. She also has lapses um, in these scenes where she sort of goes to a bar at one point and gets kind of drunk. And she's, at first it kind of almost plays funny, like she gives a hand job in the bathroom in a scene that sort of played for laughs with this actor. And then things go really dark and become literal. Um, and there's a, Rape scene that kind of sneaks up on you that comes out of nowhere um that's really disturbing. And so she's descending in ways that are also her interacting with the world increasingly. Um and that sort of culminates in a scene where she starts stalking Amanda's nurse.
2: I have one thing to say before we move on from her her crazy night on the town, right <laughs> where she suddenly decides, like you say, to go and just essentially pick up whoever she can pick up in a bar, right? And That scene, the scene that you describe as a rape scene, which it is in part, but it also ends with a horrible fantasy, right, about her sort of applying, I don't know, CPR to this guy that she's on top of. And then his chest caves in in this horrific way. And that seemed to me like it might be, among other things, a repressed memory, something reaching back to whatever happened to that mysterious person in the very first shot. Yes,
0: I took that as as maybe exactly what happened you know that she was trying to revive because yeah it's almost like she's she's doing cpr and like his chest caves in and um and that's when she kind of like checks out of the sexual encounter um and then it turns very dark after that um we also get a little hint of her past life in that scene because the man the second man that she hooks up with sort of says, like, oh, I used to see you out and about and kind of implies that she was, like, a little bit um, slutty or something. Like, he's being kind of joke- jokey and degrading about it. Um, but we sort of get this sense of her, of her past life with more of a, a social life.
1: Yeah, I guess I skipped ahead a little bit. There's also that friend who right. helps, um, is the one that Ruth mentioned before, who helps sort of explain a former nurse friend who sort of invites her out, but they never really end up meeting up until a scene... Um, later on but we sort of do get a sense that she used to be more of like a normal fun Welsh nurse I suppose
2: Mm-hmm. As Welsh nurses go. Yeah. And that friend goes to visit her increasingly creepy apartment, right? Sees the shrine, etc. And, and they have another of those really laden, tension laden moments like the party at Amanda's house where didn't you both think during that scene that she was going to somehow go off and commit some act of violence on the friend?
1: Oh, yeah. So at this point, um, in sort of like a nod toward what's to come, Maud seems to become fixated on a picture from that book that shows like self-immolation um, or certainly somebody being burned. Um, and she has this like very large vat of some sort of chemical and that scene where they're standing in this tiny apartment and you're just waiting, you're like, get out of this apartment, get get out out of this <laughs> apartment. and you're just waiting for her to light her up.
2: Yeah. And again, that was some restraint on Rose Glass's part to let that woman get away. Right. And make us wait a little longer. Yeah. The friend is so normy. There's this I love this moment where she looks at the shrine and she's like,
0: "Ooh, I love this. You know, just that it's sort of cute. (laughs) Instagram decor. Like, this is so cool. (laughs) You're just like, get out of there, girl.
1: Yeah, basically, the friend seems concerned about her, um, mm-hmm. but eventually just kind of does sort of take the hint and leave. And we I don't think we see her again.
2: No. What about the scene? I wasn't quite sure what one scene was doing in this very economical movie where, in general, everything belongs. And if anything, you would like a little bit more time. But I didn't quite get the scene of her going down to the wharf or wherever it was, sitting on a bench and she has a conversation with a stranger there, right? And then she seems to spot, is it—is it Amanda, Jennifer Ely, in the wheelchair with a different caretaker that she spots? Or is it just another person who reminds her?
0: That is the caretaker. So she spots Jennifer Ely in the distance with this woman. And then later, I, I think it's the same nurse. It's Jennifer Ely's current nurse that Maude sort of quasi- Stalks, or maybe I can't remember if it's presented as a coincidence or if Maude has sort of been following her, but that I think that is her kind of confronting um, Jennifer Ely's current nurse and being kind of disgusted, I think, with how she's not, you know, she doesn't see her as a, as a proper caretaker.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's just one scene at a bench. Mm-hmm. When you were just saying it, I was wondering if it was two, but I think it's explicitly her. And they talk a little bit about her, and then Maud ends the conversation in like a very sort of like ominous, like runaway kind of way. And the woman's like, "Oh," and then that sort of leads up to, I guess, the finale, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think we have to we have to get to the confrontation <laughs> between the two women, which you've been waiting for for all this time, and then like so much else toward the end of this movie. It happens so swiftly that. Even though I'm a little scared to see it again, I want to see the movie again just to understand how these events in the last 15 minutes or so unfold. So she waits until that other caretaker is leaving the house to do some kind of errand. We see her kind of lurking on the the lawn of the Gothic mansion Mm -hmm. and then making her way in. And Ruth, do you want to, since you've seen it more recently, tell us what what her very last confrontation with with Amanda is like?
0: Yeah, so she goes in there, and Amanda is much sicker. Um, It's sort of, she's declined noticeably since we saw her last. And they have this conversation. At first, Amanda seems sort of glad to see her, and she apologizes for how things ended, and it seems like, oh, maybe we'll get this nice kind of resolution here. Um, But eventually the conversation turns, and Amanda is is pretty brutal with saying, like, there's no God, nothing you do matters. And th- that's been, I think it's important for Maude to think that her pain is being used. I mean, that's something that she articulates a few times in the kind of prayer voiceover that we hear throughout the movie, um, that she wants her, her suffering Never waste to your mean pain something. Never waste your pain. Exactly. And so, to me, that read as, as sort of the most devastating thing that Amanda could say to her that there's sort of no meaning to this pain um and then also that there's no afterlife and then we see it I mean it really scared me (laughs) this moment after this sort of slow burn suspense um it's like a really shocking moment where Amanda we see Amanda sort of turn into a demon and she starts to you know her voice changes it becomes this man's voice this kind of like evil male voice Um, and Maude stabs her and we don't see uh it it happens pretty fast we don't see the exact mechanism but I think it's like with a scissors or was it was there like a scissors in her neck I kind of had to cover my face
2: for (laughs) yeah I got the impression it it, it, I mean again it might just be the economy of the movie but I agree. It almost happened too fast. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not one who wants to linger over gore in these kind of movies at all. But um, but it's not really even physically clear how she was able to have the strength to kill her, especially because Amanda is shown at that moment that she becomes sort of demonic as having this... I can't remember visually how it's established, but that she, she has this up burst of strength. Yeah, she, def- right. she
0: has this kind of new energy um, during that moment. But, I mean, is that, I don't know that that's... I took it as that sort of that wasn't really happening, that Amanda herself was still
2: this weakened body. Um, I mean, you'd have to, then you have to ask the question, how much of this is really happening? Was it even the case that Amanda, you know, turned on her and started to say all these very nihilistic things about the non-existence of God? I mean, it so quickly turns from a somewhat tender re-encounter to this awful, hostile, and ultimately murderous one that Mm -hmm. you have to ask yourself, when did the slippage from reality begin?
1: Yeah, I think, I, I I will say if, my re- I thought it was a great set piece uh, like it was the movie's like big jump scare moment but it was very very earned and very satisfying mm-hmm. um, and Amanda turning into this sort of cackling exorcist like figure like a devil who's just tempted her basically the setup for it I think is that she makes her question her faith like there's a moment where Maude is like mm, maybe Amanda's right and then she turns into a devil and she's like that was easy and the scene is just, it's, <laughs> it's, it's disgusting and horrible but also kind of fun uh, in a perverse way and um, but yeah, I didn't, I, I do agree that it all of a sudden was over, but it seemed very clear to me from the moment that Maud was sort of slowly, glumly walking up the steps to the mansion that Amanda was going to be dying in a few minutes.
2: <laughs> yeah, I guess the only question would be, you know, would there be some way that they would both not make it out, right? But yeah. but in fact, it is, I guess you would say, St. Maud, who's the, the victor in that situation. And uh, and then she, the movie very quickly rolls to its even more horrifying conclusion, Um, Jeffrey, do you you want to take some of this bit? I mean, at this point, there's only after Amanda's death, there's maybe only five minutes left in Mm -hmm. the movie, right?
1: Yeah, at this point, we're marching toward what we have already a pretty clear sense of what's coming. I think there's no doubt that Maude sees herself um, needing to go up in a ball of flames. It's telegraphed in a lot of little ways. You see the chemicals in the picture comes back a couple of times from the book. Um, from what I recall, is she just wandering around town for a bit? Well,
2: don't forget the garment.
1: Oh, right, she puts on a she puts on a flowing white garment. Is there that made before? That,
2: was she? I think she was wearing that to Amanda's. Cause oh, that might a, be right. I, Possibly um, so. I mean, we see her arranging it earlier. Mm-hmm. At least she has these kind of everything in her her apartment is very beige. I love the visual contrast between the the blankness of her apartment and the kind of lush velvety textures of, of Jennifer Ely, Amanda's apartment. Um, but she puts on this kind of beige bed sheet, right, with a crossover. So she mm-hmm. looks sort the of rosary. like a, a medieval monk or, or a nun. Yeah, with a rosary necklace. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think maybe that's already been established as her outfit. And they show townspeople looking at her askance as she walks the streets dressed that way.
1: Yeah, she's wandering very deliberately and slowly and seems to have sort of found this kind of ecstasy. It doesn't. It's not a particularly... Um, grim moment even though we know we kind of have a sense of what's about to happen it seems like she feels like she's reached actualization and then um, so they're on what is i guess a coney island um, um, in the uk somewhere uh, <laughs> a new yorker see it and think of you know the one that we have but apparently there are many
2: the town is is great that it's filmed in i oh, think yeah. it's called scarborough i looked it up because it's such a unique location and uh, and it really looks like that they didn't have to dress the locations or anything uh, it's just a run down old beach resort that that looks exactly that way
1: yeah it's the absolute perfect setting for this movie there's just there's a lot of atmosphere that we can't fully describe here that you have to see for yourself in the movie but there's a lot of scenes where maud is just kind of walking around town being uh, sort of flighty and uh, upset, seems like, and so much of it is informed by the her surroundings. The sort of
2: ratty old neon signs and, yeah, just this place that seems to have been a pleasure palace town many decades ago. And yeah. we never do know why Jennifer Ely's character lives there, right? I mean, she sounds
0: American and... It, there's a scene where Maude says, "Like, what? You know, what does she see in this place? She must see this as kind of as depressing as I see it." And I don't think we ever really know why she lives in this old, you know, crumbling mansion. There,
2: I think that there's a tossed away line early on, and I'd have to see it again. Mm. But I think Jennifer Ely herself says something. I mean, everything she says is kind of mordantly sarcastic, but she says some tossed off line about the ridiculous house she's in, and you get a sense that either she has to live there because she inherited it, and she has nowhere else mm. to go. You don't get the sense that this is her longtime home, but more that it's a place that she's ended up at the end of her life because it's there for her.
1: Yeah, you sort of do wonder because when she throws that part, there do seem to be a lot of like London folk who just like magically descend on the space. So maybe it's not that far away. Uh, it's unclear, but yeah, I, I wonder about that. But that kind of
2: goes with the magical feeling of the movie in general, right? I mean, it doesn't take place in a particularly realistic setting. It True. it feels like this. It feels like a stage set, right? I mean, for this two hander play, and there's not really a lot of context established for who Maud is, how she got there, what what kind of family she comes from. We know nothing about that, right? So you have to. Kind kind of accept a lot of artificiality Mm -hmm. to to get to this encounter between these two women.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And so she's in this town. She's in the neon-hued, gritty sort of um, lost town in her, like, flowing, beautiful, (laughs) like, elegant garments. And she's sort of marching around. Until she gets, she goes, well, she goes back to her apartment, I suppose, to get her large vat of chemicals. And then she goes. Which
2: I thought the whole time was going to be some sort of acid that she was going to try to me melt too. herself down with, or some other people. Like when her friend comes to the apartment, I thought we were going to end up with some horrible Raiders of the Lost Ark melting person <laughs> image.
1: I don't know why, but I just like felt very sure that this was going to involve fire. Um, <laughs> but uh, she goes onto the beach. And um, maybe Rue, since this is a very. Uh, the image is quite informed by religion. Perhaps uh, you should take us out with describing it.
0: Yeah, she's she's on the beach. We see this flash, I think maybe st- just in the apartment, of these kind of glowing wings that she has. So clearly in her mind, yeah, she's like ascending. She's becoming purer and purer and closer to God. Um, and so she she walks out to the beach. Then she looks up and there's this swirling kind of portal in the sky um you know maybe sort of some like portal to heaven and it's an image we've seen before at one point she sees it I think in her beer on the at the on the drunken depressing night out um so it's it's an image that she has had in her mind but she looks up and she sees it almost like she's being called up to heaven she I'm trying to remember exactly what order all this happens in but she douses herself with this concoction. And then all the people on the beach kind of turn toward her and like bow down before her, um, kind of acknowledging her holiness is how it reads to me. And then she lights herself on fire. And the very, very last cut, I hope if I'm missing anything there, you guys can jump in, but the very, very last shot of the movie, I mean, it's literally like one second, is it cuts between this kind of The beautiful flames I think of how Maude would like to imagine this moment this moment of like total spiritual transcendence and then it cuts to her actual burning body which of course is gory and not beautiful and not glamorous not transcendent and just this sort of pure horror shot and then that's the very last moment of the movie.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it's an incredibly economical ending. I mean, I almost, even though it was meant to be scary and was scary, I almost laughed at just the suddenness of that one second long shot and then the movie ending. There's just such an assuredness, I think, on Rose Glass's part in giving us so little and yet letting it have such an impact. And at Fantastic Fest, where this showed, apparently it was a big hit and people loved that last scene. And that just really pleases me because this movie doesn't go that heavy on the gore. It's not trying to top any other movie. You know, it just it seems to know exactly what it wants to be.
1: I agree. But I also just, I think we should emphasize that it is just sort of an impossibly brutal moment. It goes from sort of this ecstatic, divine rapture into all of a sudden seeing just her scream in that scene and her like she's like kind of sh- convulsing and her skin is charring off and she screams this horrible scream and then the movie goes to black right and it is it is an extremely haunting moment that i constantly have think about since you mentioned before that we wanted to to sort of prime this for people who are a little bit more reluctant with horror movies and we have a thing it's like called the Scarity scale where we rate it based on different categories um because people are scared by different things but this movie ticks like every single box in that scale <laughs> and like really makes this movie to. Me be so much more horrifying I think I have a particular thing about people burning alive I guess I don't know why I just like particularly don't like it among all the gore categories but
2: <laughs> well it's this, a pretty bad one <laughs> as know, they go I,
1: I know but it, for everyone has their thing that they particularly have a hard time with in movies and that's one of mine so That's true, but it is. I thought
0: the scab scene was so much worse, (laughs) where she's like slowly picking off this burn. Um, (laughs) Which to me, you know, you're right. Everyone has their own thing. That to me was so much harder to watch than than this. But
1: it's interesting. But it is it is quite a hardcore ending. I watched it and I was like, "Damn!" Like Rose Glass is here to play. This is like serious Mm -hmm.
2: stuff. I'm actually impressed that somebody who's a real horror connoisseur felt that way because I really admired the ending too. But I had this feeling especially hearing that it had played at Fantastic Fest wondering whether you know edge lords who want to prove that they're more horror, they dig horror deeper than anyone else would regard it as too slight or too you know sort of not enough to be to be truly scary when i think it's the not enoughness that that makes it so scary also of course the entire film as we've talked about has been this um this battle between the material and the spiritual between what is really happening and what might be happening only in maud's head and that last shot, that just second long last shot of basically sort of a sc- of screaming near skeleton just takes you completely back into the realm of materiality. Like, here's what was happening all along, you know. And I suppose that you could choose to what degree to um, to interpret the rest of the film backwards from that image. But there's no question that what's being drawn right there is this very sharp line between, you know, mm-hmm. the, the ascension that's happening in Maud's head and just the sheer self-immolation that's happening on the beach.
0: That's exactly how I read it. The whole movie has been slipping back and forth between Maud's you know, desperation to create some kind of spiritual meaning out of her her very like drab and frightening and and at times traumatic life, loneliness and um she's just spinning spinning this meaning and this beauty out of it or attempting to. We didn't even talk about the scene at the end. I think it's at the end of her night out where she levitates in her apartment. Um and so you know, you see you're sort of seeing these like magical things happening around mod all the time. And at the end, it's just very clear, like, here's what was really happening. like here's the the ugliness. You know, you see just this shock second of of the pure ugliness that is that is reality.
1: Yeah. Talking to the two of you, I'm wondering if the movie tipped its hand a little earlier, but to me, that's exactly how I read that scene, is that if you can question whether or not these like spiritual occurrences and these orgasmic sort of prayer sessions are real, uh, in that final shot, it's very clear what the movie thinks is happening.
2: Yeah. And and, and you start to think, well, wait, it was a movie about mental illness all along, right? And I wonder if,
0: I'm just thinking this through now, but if, if Maude is like cutting away to that too, because it's one thing to think about how beautiful it will be to set yourself on fire. You know, if you're caught up in this, in this mental illness, but then when you really do it, uh, it, you know, my guess is that there would be sort of a jump cut in her own experience too, um, as she's oh, going Oh, that's lands. horrifying to
2: think about. I I, I wish for <laughs> Maude's sake that she at least went to her maker Me too. imagining the first thing. One thing I think that I can safely say from this movie is that I'm really excited to see what Rose Glass does next. I mean, such an assured debut. Even if you don't think everything about this movie is perfect, you you can't deny that it has a voice, a very individual voice. And even though it seems so influenced by classic horror like The Exorcist or as I was saying by the kind of Bergman-Bresson spiritual film tradition of the 60s, it also just feels original and and new.
1: I agree. Um, I think especially just her formal assurance, like everything we've described probably makes the movie sound pretty tense, but because of the way the camera toward the end is like always off its access and kind of following Maude and Maude is like walking on the ceiling and there's like all kinds of things that like are flipping reality around. And the movie just visually suffocates you more and more as it goes on. And it's very clear that she is, it seems I tried to find out more about her and it seems like she just went up through a very traditional way. She's like made short films for 10 years, went to film school and she's like studied up. um, And now she made a great movie which is so refreshing. She's not like some person plucked up from like doing a music video or something. She's just somebody who like studied her favorite favorite filmmakers and really like just developed a voice and she's made a fairly knockout, especially from a visual perspective debut feature.
2: yeah. I, I did not know that she'd come up through film school like that, but I know she only has short films to her name before this. and uh, yeah, it's a it's a pretty smashing debut. It made me think of Jennifer Kent's Baba Duke just in the sense that it's a woman filmmaker making her very first movie. It's a smashing debut and it's a psychological horror thriller.
0: yeah, I agree. I can't wait to see what else what else she does even if I didn't think this movie was perfect, but i I was riveted by it and I am very, very excited to see where she goes from here.
2: All right. Well, thanks to both of you for coming in to spoil this with me. If she does make another movie, we'll, we'll talk about it in the future, I hope. Yeah, sounds good.
1: Love that. This is fun.
2: <laughs> if you like this episode, please don't forget to rate us and review us in the Apple iTunes Store or wherever you get your podcasts. That helps new people discover our show. And for all of our Slate Podcast listeners out there, please help us make a better slate by answering our survey. It will only take a few minutes, and you can find it at slate.com survey. Our producer today was Morgan Flannery. For Jeff Bloomer and Ruth Graham, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.